Well, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles so that we can read together. Tonight, we're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 42, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 28. You have heard of Joseph's dreams, and you have heard of Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh's dreams were a warning, obviously, from God. Oh, I am not on. Why, thank you. Pharaoh's dreams were obviously a warning from God of what was going to take place shortly. There would be the years of feast, the seven years of, of abundant harvests, and then there would be the seven years of terrible famine. And so they were able to prepare. And through this means, Joseph was exalted from the dungeon, literally, to the palace. He was able to go from being amongst the lowliest in Egypt to second only to Pharaoh. And he has made preparations. But uh, in this, his original dreams, you remember, that the Lord had sent him, that his father and his brothers uh, would bow down before him, are coming to pass. And we'll see that literally occurring within this chapter. But before we go to the word of God, let's go to the God who has given us this word, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we are so thankful for your word. It is a guide it is a lamp to our path. Without it, Lord, we would wander about in darkness, not knowing which way to go. We would not know our right from our left. We would be blind men and women and children. We thank you, therefore, that you have given us a sure rule and guide for our lives. Help us then to apply it. Help me, O oh Lord, now to divide your word aright. I don't want to say anything that isn't in keeping with that word. I want your people to understand it as it was meant to be understood by you. And I do thank you, Lord, for this opportunity you've given us to open it up. Help us to take advantage of it. Help us not to be distracted by all those things that, that come in at this very moment, those things that uh, occupy our time. Let us not be drowsy. We, Lord, are able to sit through uh, hours-long Marvel movies. Uh, but we, uh, as soon as we come into the worship of the Lord and deal with things of, of eternal life and eternal death, uh, sleep steals upon us. Don't let that be the case, Lord. We, we desire to hear your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Reading now from chapter 42, verses 1 through 28. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them when he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. 
And they said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of the sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them. And they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will last forever. You remember, of course, that uh, in Genesis, in chapter 15, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham. We read, starting in verse 12, Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and we will uh, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. After they word, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, that promise that they would be taken into the land and then that they would brought, be brought out again, that would require some doing. It meant that all of the family had to go to Egypt, a place that they had been warned against several times, all together and all at the right time. And so as we read these chapters, I want you to understand what we're seeing unfolding is God's sovereign plan. These are not obviously random chances uh, occurring. This is rather God's redemptive purposes happening in ways that were not initially pleasant to the people who experience them, certainly. A great consternation, obviously, is being experienced by the brothers through what they're going through. Now, one of the things, one of the themes that we're going to see in the next few chapters, it's going to come up, and it's a, it's a biblical theme, and so we need to be able to recognize it, understand it, and see the truth in it. We live in a day and age when we cannot put basic, even the most basic cause and effect together. For instance, we are systematically doing everything that we can to eliminate the family and fathers in particular. And what has been the result of that? Has it been the blissful nirvana, the utopian state that we were always promised? 
far from it. I mean, when we look about us, we see a level of lawlessness. We see a level of bloodthirstiness. We see drone males. We see above all things, we see male failure at every level as sons raised without fathers simply fail all around us. Now, the word of God, if we had listened to it, would have told us, you take men out of the, you take fathers out of the picture, that is what will happen. You remove the creation ordinance of the family, this will happen. I gave you these things for a set purpose, and once you destroy them, everything falls apart. The family is the basic building block of our society, and as we remove the family, we are seeing nothing good from it, but we will not admit that we have done wrong. We won't turn away. We can't figure out, we tell ourselves, what we are doing wrong. Even our, even our surveys tell us we're on the wrong path. Statistically, in survey after survey, women say that they are unhappier now today than they have ever been in US history. All the time. Children are more, and this is something that we we didn't even have really a category for it in measuring it in prior days. Child suicide was not a problem that America had 100 years ago. Now it is. Children are more suicidal than they ever have been in our history, and it's getting worse. Both stats are climbing sharply, but we figure that more of the same general anti-biblical agenda that we've been pursuing will settle things, that somehow perhaps we'll get to a climax where, you know, just short of 100%, we begin to dip, and then we'll be happy all of a sudden. If you believe that, then you believe that the Venezuelans are just a little more socialism away from great prosperity and happiness in their own country. We all know that pursuing the right goals the wrong way does not work, and that is what we're doing. We don't see, therefore, cause and effect. And I have to tell you, we as a people have ceased to understand the connection between sin and consequences that God established. That's a universal truism. At this point in time, though, that we're reading about, by God's grace, the people even the people who did not have God's revelation had a much stronger sense of the link between sinful behavior and evil consequences. Now, I must tell you, there is no such thing as karma. Karma is a Buddhist idea. This is not what is operating. But we need to remember that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he will not allow evildoers to continue on in the way that they, uh, in their evil, without intervening. He always does because he's a loving God. Now, we understand that the link between evil deeds and evil consequences can be overstated. We have an entire book in the Bible about overstating that link, don't we? What's the book called? Job. Thank you. Very good. We, uh, well done. I wish I could get gold stars from the pulpit, but I can't. In any event, they, uh, yes, we have that, that book that tells us there is a way that we can overstate this. People can, by God's providential decision, have bad consequences occur in their lives and it not be easily connected to sin in their lives, as was the case with Job. Job did not understand the, the greater redemptive historical uh, context that he was living in the middle of. I mean, if you'd sat down with Job and you said, okay, 
All right, you don't, you don't understand this right now, but uh, Job, uh, roughly 4,000 years from now, there's a bunch of people in Fayetteville who are going to be reading your book, um, and they're going to learn about your life, and they're going to learn important lessons. For, and Fayetteville? What, what are you talking about? It, it would be impossible to explain at that point in time. And for us, I think it would be impossible for us to see exactly how our lives had to go through the various steps. But someday in heaven, we will have that understanding. So it is possible to overstate that link between bad consequences and bad deeds. But nonetheless, the link exists. There is a general connection between unrepented sin and the consequences of that sin. And we do see that in the Bible as well, don't we? We see it, for instance, in David's sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery, tries to cover it up, fails to do that, ends up murdering Uriah. And then Nathan is sent by God. God reminds him, you thought nobody knew about this other than your accomplice Joab and the people in the palace who work for you. But no, I saw. And there will be consequences for what you did. That is a truism as well. As Moses wrote several hundred years after the events that we just read about in Genesis 42, But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Sins have a way of being found out. I know countless people don't believe that that's the case, but they do. And if we're believers, then the Lord loves us. And if the Lord loves us, he will cause our sins to come to light. Now, we will see this concept, as I said, coming out in the lives of these brothers. Now, what's going on? Let's get into the context of what we just read about. They, they tried to put off, obviously, going to Egypt, but they can't They're, uh, do it any longer. They're running out of food for themselves. We remember, and we're reminded by this, that while Canaan was nice, Canaan was the place that God indicated that they should dwell in. Canaan is not perfect. It is not a place that is not subject to famines when the rest of the world is undergoing a famine. And so uh, they are forced to admit what's going on. Well, the brothers don't admit what's going on. Um, but Jacob at least has the common sense to look at them and say, why are you standing around like a bunch of slack-jawed yokels? There's, there's food in Egypt. Go get it, you nitwits. It ain't going to spring up suddenly by itself. Go get some seed quick. And so he sends them off to do that. Now, why is this happening? Well, it's, it's necessary, as I said, for the redemptive history pattern to, to come into play as, as God intended for it to do so. It's necessary to get Jacob and his brothers out of Canaan and into Egypt. All of these things have to take place. But we see that Jacob sends 10 of the 11 brothers to Egypt. If he had sent 11 of the 11 brothers, 11 donkeys, they would have brought back a lot more provender for the family. But no, he's not sending Benjamin. Benjamin is the last living son of Rachel. From his perspective, the last living son of Rachel. He thinks Joseph, of course, died a long time ago. Now, some commentators, uh, one I respect very much, uh, Robert Candlish, read into this story uh, that over time, Jacob may have come to suspect that Joseph's death and their finding his garment torn and bloodied wasn't entirely by chance either, that his brothers may have had a hand in it, in which case the past few years were awful. Can you imagine all of the uh, downcast eyes 
the suspicions that the father harbored amongst his own sons that he was not able to bring out and so on. What an awful family situation. And they managed to bring that about by lying to their old man about what happened to Joseph. But in any event, regardless of whether or not he believes that they were responsible for Joseph's death, he will not trust them. He judges their character and finds it faulty. And he says, I'm not going to trust them with Benjamin, my beloved youngest son. So they end up going without him. And they end up in front of Joseph himself. Now, the question needs to be asked, of course, he's their brother. Why don't they recognize their own brother? I mean, my brother goes through changes without me, you know, being there to witness them. But generally speaking, I still, oh, yeah, that's Noel. That's my brother. You know, he may have put on weight, lost weight, changed, you know, cut his hair. I I still, I know it's my, my brother. Why didn't they recognize Joseph? Well, he's grown up now. And he was a teen when he left. He's now an adult man. And also, the Egyptian way of, of dress and life was very different from that of the Hebrews. He would have been shaven of all his hair. He would have been wearing royal regalia and makeup. And he is not speaking Hebrew. Note this. He speaks Egyptian. And then he has an interpreter translate for him in speaking to them. They don't even think he speaks the language. So he is strange to them. And finally, please understand this. There's, there's something going on in their, in their minds. Even if they say, you know, it's funny. He, he looks a little like Joseph did, doesn't he? Still, it's impossible that this man is Joseph. It's absolutely impossible. They think he's, he's probably dead. The way they speak about him. How do they speak about him? They speak about him in the past tense. He's no more. They sold him to Midianite merchants to be a slave, the very bottom of the social strata. It is literally impossible for the man that they're speaking to to be their brother. So they don't even entertain that possibility. This man they are speaking to, they know, is second only to Pharaoh. But the moment he sees them, he recognizes them. And then he sees them bowing down before him. And in that moment, he must have known that what the Lord had promised him in its very fullness, in that initial dream, the dreams that they had mocked him for, has come to place, come to pass, rather. Now, why don't we read at this point, and then Joseph stood up and said, Brothers, it's so good to see you. Thank heavens you've come. I can take care of you. Go get dad. We'll have a party. It'll be wonderful, and so on. No, he doesn't do that, does he? Why does he reveal himself to his brothers immediately so they can, they can have their joyful reunion in this chapter waiting rather than waiting several chapters to do so. I have to tell you, and this may disappoint you, that's never spelled out exactly why he made that decision. But we will find out later on that he understands it was God's will that he be sent to Egypt. But he also understands that what they did, they did out of evil. They did it out of spite. They did it out of hatred. But he also knows that God meant it for good. And we'll talk about this when we hit chapter 50. We're going to have a glorious discussion about the sovereignty of God. And how he overrules the the evil that men do. But we see there's a method to, to Joseph's actions here. We get hints that he wants to test his brothers. And he wants to put them through the crucible at this point. He wants to see if they have regrets about what they did to him. And clearly also we need to remember that God is using Joseph as his instrument in awakening the consciences of these brothers who are so very important to his plans. 
Candlish again uh, believes he was all along acting by inspiration. So his plans here were according to God's plans. So what does he do? He plays the heavy with them. They don't know who he is, uh, but they do know that this man whom they're standing in front of, that he has the power of life and death over them. Not only that he has the power you know, of sudden death over them if he, if he simply snaps his fingers and says execute these men, he could do that. But he also has the power of death over them in that he could say no grain for you. He could be the grain Nazi and send them away and they can't get in anywhere else. And so they would all die as well. So they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. So what does he accuse them of? He accuses them of being spies. People sent by a foreign power to find out how strong the defenses of Egypt were. And this is not a joke. We may look at it and say, well, that's ridiculous, the accusation that these ordinary guys were spies. Well, it's not ridiculous. This is the only place in the entire Mediterranean region where there is food and food in abundance. At some point during the seven years of famine, especially as the supplies of gold would be going down, 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 and the supplies of food would also be dipping down with it, the surrounding powers must have sent actual spies, probably they already had by this time, to find out if a raid to capture the food instead of paying for it was possible. So they, of course, that is his brothers, are terrified by this line of questioning. They know what happens to spies. Spies get tortured and then they get killed. Uh, so they, they just they look at him and, you know, big white eyes. No, we just came to get food. We aren't servants of a foreign power. How do they plan to, to prove that? Well, we're not 12 guys unrelated to one another like you would find in the military sent out in the unit. We're not in every, anyone's military. We're all from the same family. Altogether, there were 12 brothers. One stayed home and then one, and they say this with a, a touch of regret now, guilt. One, Joseph is no more. Now, it's possible also that Joseph wanted them to remember the terror that they had worked in him when they threw him in the pit and when they left him there. And, and you remember, Reuben brings out, you remember the boys pleading with us. You remember his lamentable cries and so on that we didn't listen to. He didn't know, did he, Joseph, when he was thrown into the pit, whether he was going to live or die. He'd heard them talking about killing him. They'd stripped him of his coat. He was thrown in there. They knew that he knew very well they can't just take me back to dad because when dad hears about what they did, he'll be furious. They're probably going to kill me. So what does he do? He puts them in prison. Now, his original plan was, I'm going to keep, uh, I'm going to keep nine of you and send one back. But eventually he softens and he decides, well, it's probably, I, I don't know, I'm speculating here, hand up because I'm speculating. Um, it's probably because he realized if he only send one, uh, one brother back, he's sending them back without enough grain to keep his family alive in Canaan. So he has to change that plan. In any event, the three days have the desired effect. Their pride is broken. They're fearful. And they've had time to think without anything to do. And what's happened? The guilt has come upon them. It's come upon their conscience. So he tells them that he's going to test them. He's going to test their honesty. Are you really brothers? Okay, I'm going to test you. He gives them a test. One of the ways that I'm going to figure out whether or not you're spies or not is I'm going to keep one of you. You go fetch your younger brother. Now, if you really are brothers, you're not going to leave your brother in Egypt. So you'll go get the other one. And he devises this, obviously, because clearly he wants to see his youngest brother, his only full brother, Benjamin. He wants to be reunited with him. 
And his prompting has the desired effect. Uh, they figure that this is happening. They make the connections because the Lord is paying them back for the evil they did to Joseph. Now, at this point in time, if you told them, no, ultimately this will be for your good, they probably would be like, no, that's not possible. This, this can't work out for good. But it was going to work for their good. But they figure at this point, yes, we're being paid back. We are truly guilty, they confess, concerning our brother. And they say as much, not realizing that Joseph can hear them and understand them. And Reuben sums it up. He says, now his blood is required of us. We're going to probably die because of what we did to him. Now, another question comes up. Why is Simeon chosen to be the one who goes to jail? Why not Reuben? Reuben is the oldest, after all. He would have been the, the highest value asset amongst the group, so to speak. But Reuben's words that, that Joseph heard saw that his conscience was now fully awake. Also, he finally knows and understand that he didn't know this before, that his brother had no part in his other brother's wicked plot to, to sell him. Joseph, throughout these years, had thought Reuben was in league with them. But now he learns that it was Reuben's desire that he be set free. And furthermore, that, you know, that he, had, he had tried to, to convince them of that, that, that it had failed. So they're loaded, up with, uh, they're loaded up on their donkeys. They're sent back without Simeon. They're very sad. And on their way home, one of the brothers opens up his sack, doesn't he? And he finds what? His money. And he thinks, oh, this is normal. Look, we got a rebate. It's like cash back. It's a reward. No, they, they don't do that. Instead of being happy, they are even more fearful. They're more disturbed. What on earth is the Lord doing with us? Now, it's interesting. They don't say, what on earth is Joseph doing with us? Because they understand that men ultimately are beholden to God. Right? It's a sad thing that we don't do that. We don't recognize, we, we look at wars, we look at leaders, we look at events, we don't think powers and principalities, and we don't think everything under God's control. And as a result, we get terribly anxious, don't we? All right, I want to make one grand application of all of this, and I've got to admit, it's a hard application to take in. It's not just a hard application to take in, though. It is an incredibly hard application to put into effect. All right, so I've prepared you for this. We need to... We need to, as a people, as Christians, we need to regain first a sense that evil actions never produce good outcomes. Never. That when we attempt to please ourselves or produce good things by following evil plans, that ultimately they will not work for good. We also need to see the whole time God's overarching hand in everything. We remember that God can and will use bad providences for good. He'll use bad providences, for instance, to awaken the conscience of unbelievers, to bring them to repentance. One of the things that I, I've read many a time are uh, Puritan uh, treatises on how as they were speaking to prisoners who had been arrested for their crimes and were hanging, headed to the gallow, that was gallows to be put to death. That was the moment at which God awakened their conscience to see their sins and caused them to flee to him. So although they, they bore the earthly penalty of their sins, yet because of what Christ had done, they were freed from the eternal penalty and gained eternal life. Sometimes it'll be in extremis that God brings us to an understanding of our sinfulness, opens our eyes and sends us to the Lord. 
Sometimes we need to feel the effects of our sin as believers in order to be brought to repentance as well. And if we don't feel the effect of our sins, generally speaking, we will not repent of them. You remember what happened with David. It wasn't until God sent Nathan to him that he determined, yes, I have sinned. Yes, it's time for me to repent, even though he had committed adultery and murder. He did not feel the sting of it until it became known. Now, their unconfessed sin had caused, that is the unconfessed sin of these brothers, had caused literally years, years of misery for Jacob, years of misery for Joseph. Okay, these were the two men that they had sinned against, but I guarantee you it had also caused years of misery for themselves. They were walking around every single day with this heavy load of guilt, carrying it with them. And finally, it's becoming unbearably heavy because of the consequences that they're in the midst of. One of the worst things that we can do, brothers and sisters, is walk around day after day after day with the sack of a guilty conscience on our backs. It can and it has driven people mad. One of, the, one of the terrible things that I've watched happening in our society is we see a tendency amongst people, they commit sins, and sin makes them miserable, and sin makes them, the people around them, miserable, and then what do they do? They say, it's their fault. They're to blame. It's not my sin that's caused the problem. It's not the sin that's making me sad. It's not the sin that I need to repent of. It's them. It's their problem. And we can do this in so many ways. I I, I will confess to you a way that I do it, okay? I will get angry. I will get anxious about things that are happening in the congregation. And I will say it's their fault because they did this. They sinned. They're having this problem. If they didn't have that problem, I wouldn't be feeling bad. No, you know what the problem is? It's my lack of faith. Oh, what needless grief we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's my problem. I'm not trusting Christ. I'm not trusting his promises. I'm acting like it's up to me and it's all on my shoulders. It's not. And what a fool not to to unburden myself before Christ. And yet I do it all the time. What an idiot I am. 52 years old. Many, many years in the Christian faith, you think I'd learn by now, but no. So I go around, and what do I do? I make other people miserable around me. That'll help. Here's my misery. Have some of it. And it's your fault, by the way. No, it's not. You gave your misery to me. You just pushed it off. You're being mean and angry. Why are you doing that? Because of something you did. I'll figure it out later. But it can't be me. It can't be my unwillingness to repent. My unwillingness to go to God, my unwillingness to unburden myself, my unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. In fact, when I know that I've done something mean and to you, I'll get angry at you. Because you're reminding me that I sinned and I can't stand your presence in that moment because I'm not repenting. What foolishness. And we can spin that up. We can, you know, we can, I, oh, okay, what am I going to do? I've, I've ruined this person's life with my sin. 
they make me feel guilty. Our relationship is destroyed. I know, I'll divorce them, I'll unfriend them, I'll do something like that, I'll put them out, and then I'll, I'll try again somewhere else, and it happens again and again and again and again. And what's always at the center of the problem? It's me. What has happened? We've decided that it's everybody else's problem, everybody else is to blame, but it's not us. It's us, brothers and sisters. It's our unconfessed sins. We won't confess them to God. We won't confess them to anyone else. We carry them around with us and we wonder why we are such a mess. Why our, our, our brains are broken. It's because we have determined we'll carry these things around. We'd rather have those, you know, the downcast eyes, the inability to talk truth to one another, the inability to come clean with our brothers and sisters, the inability to reconcile. We'd rather have that. Would we really rather have that? Oh, heaven help us. No. One of the worst things you can do is to keep your sin tucked inside and then just gradually add to it and add to it and add to it without repenting. Have done with it. Confess your sins to one another. As I said, the application in one sense is very easy. Confess your sins to God and to one another. How simple is that? How impossible is that unless God works in us? First to convict us of those sins and then to convince us that the uncomfortableness of actually going through the process of repentance will actually produce far greater good. Yes, often when you confess a sin to somebody, I sinned against you. It produces, oh, I don't know, conflict, unhappiness, crying, angry words. And we're like, I don't want that moment. But understand what we often say, I don't want that moment, so instead I'll take years of uncomfortableness and guilt and resentment gradually building up within me and bitterness and not wanting to be in this situation any longer. I will, I'll, I'll take cancer and allow that to eat away at me instead of just one quick surgery, which is painful to deal with the actual problem. We will do that. It's foolishness. Be sure, if the Lord loves you, your sins will find you out. The worst thing that can happen to you is you continue on in sin without being stopped until it's too late. These brothers brought years of guilt into their lives. Don't let that happen to you and your family. Repent of your sins. Go to the Lord. You will find free forgiveness in the Redeemer of Israel, the one whom Abraham put his trust in. Jesus Christ, Jesus, I hate to put it crassly, if we put it this way, what are we in the business of? We're in the business of sinning, unfortunately. But the wonderful good news is Jesus is in the business of forgiving. If we will but go to him with whatever sins we have committed, we will be forgiven. Now, I want to, to spring just briefly to the other side of this. If somebody comes to you truly repenting of a sin, what should you do? Forgive them. Is that always easy? No. Sometimes it's going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done in your entire life to truly forgive that person. Peter said to Jesus, there's got to be a limit to this, right? I can't just keep forgiving this person. So how many times should I forgive them? Seven times maybe? And then Jesus says, 490. 
That's the limit. No, but he says seven times 70 to, to show you just keep doing it. And please do not start counting. That's ridiculous. I've given, forgiven you 489 times. That's all you got. That's not what Jesus meant. He meant continue to forgive. What does the word of God tell us? It tells us this in 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're sinners. We need to ask for forgiveness of sin, especially against the people we've sinned against. God first and then the individuals. Let's learn to do that. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. If you have, therefore, unconfessed sins floating around, and statistically, I have to tell you this, it's impossible, absolutely impossible, that me talking to you guys, there's nobody in here who's dealing with this issue. Somebody is. You know, the funny thing is, it's probably all of us. And we're all like, how did he know? It's me. No, it's the Lord knows. And the Lord knows that we've all done these things, and we need to confess them. I would urge you to confess them, both to God and the people you've, con- you've sinned against. Not for anyone else's sake, but for your sake. You will find it's the best thing that you can possibly do, ultimately. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that there is forgiveness available to those who have sinned. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to stop holding on to our guilt and hanging around with it, holding the bag throwing it over our shoulders, trudging on, and then wondering why we are so miserable. Help us to put away our sins, to come clean with you, Lord, to come clean with one another. Help us to repent of them and no more go back to them. Help us to know, O Lord, the light, the sunshine of living a life where we are constantly seeking forgiveness and knowing that it's bestowed to us freely by your grace. We thank you. We thank you for your mercy.